0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Voice for American Law Enforcement. I'm your host, uh, Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant with 34 years of service, the author of A Cop's Life and the soon to be released Rescuing 911: The Fight for America's Safety, and I'm also the founder of the Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. And on this show, we talk about all things related to law enforcement. So uh, I've got a great guest waiting for us in the interview room. Let's bring him in right now. His name is Will Moravitz, and he is – I'm, I'm going I'm to read it. This is from the jacket cover, by the way. He is an author of this book, and that's what we're going to be talking about, as well as uh, a myriad of other police subjects. But um, Will is a professor of political science for the Alamo Community Colleges and State, Texas State University. For three years, he was a police officer for the city of San Marcos, Texas, having graduated top cadet from the Basic Training Academy of University of Texas in Austin. He holds a Master's of Arts in Political Science from Texas State University and a PhD in Public Policy and Administration from Walden University. Will, thanks so much for joining me here on The Voice for American Law Enforcement.
1: Well, thank you, sir. appreciate you having me.
0: So uh, before we talk about your book, which is called The Blue Divide, by the way, nice jacket cover, Policing and Race in America, hell of a topic you chose. But before we get into <laughs> yeah. that, you know, you spent some time as a police officer. So let's talk about your law enforcement career uh, for a, for a <clears> moment. Um, why did you decide to become a police officer? And, uh, and tell me about
1: that journey. Well, a lot of it had to do with 9-11. Um, you know, I was 23 years old, just turned 23, was out, just out of college, my first job. Uh, I'd always wanted to help people, and I was actually working as youth minister at the time, and 9-11 happened, and in the, the year or two after that, I, I was just really thinking of ways that I could give back to my community, and um, unfortunately, my hearing uh, wasn't good enough to get me into the Army I was trying to enlist uh, with the army. Um, so I chose uh, law enforcement. I thought that would be, you know, a, a great way to give back to the community. It's something I thought fit my personality. Um, you know, so I just started looking, and Sam Marcus picked me up, and the rest is history. Did you enjoy policing? I did. Um, it, as I, I mentioned in a, on a different interview with uh, that was about my career specifically. Um, Once I had children, the job really started causing problems for my marriage. Um, as I'm sure you're shocked to hear that, but (laughs) yeah, uh, right. You know, my my ex wife was pretty supportive of me becoming a police officer, Uh, but once our oldest son was born, uh, she would get restless, you know, like at late at night, she called me at two or three in the morning and he'd be crying or something. And, and I'd say, you know, I got to go, i got to call. And she's like, you're not here for me, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so I left, I left the force to try to save, uh, you know, the marriage. And I, as I mentioned, she's my ex-wife, so it, it didn't quite work. Uh, and so when I decided, you know, what am I going to do with myself after that? I thought about going back into law enforcement, but you know, my oldest was three my youngest wasn't quite two. And, my dad wasn't; he was absent my whole life until I was mid twenties, um, and I didn't want to. I I just because of that experience, I, I thought education would probably be a better uh, route to go, where I could still give back, um, but my schedule would be much more accommodating for my sons.
0: Gotcha, understood. It's 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 a difficult decision to make when uh, when you're when you have to balance uh, you know parenthood. Along with a career, so yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. Uh, I get it very much. Um, all right, so let's let's move into so after policing, you you went back to school, and you I mean you you got a lot of education. Tell us about your educational process.
1: Well, I had graduated with my bachelors in two thousand. Um, initially, uh, I got a degree in psychology because I was thinking of being a, a marriage and family therapist uh, of all things. Uh, by the time he 2009 rolls around. I start going back. I was thinking of going back to grad school. I'd become very interested in politics and political science. So that's where I got my master's. has uh, got remarried during that time frame, And my wife was like, you know, why don't you go for a PhD? And so I thought, okay, <laughs> it was, it really was kind of that off the cuff type of decision. Uh, so I found a, a, a program that met, matched my schedule and uh you know, public policy was something that I was really interested in. The administration part wasn't, you know, something I was all that fired up about. But the, the policy part really was, and so uh, I transitioned from teaching uh, senior level classes at a, at a local high school, and now I'm full time faculty uh, teaching at St. Phillips College, and then adjunct at Texas State.
0: Okay, I got it. Um, is now you you wrote this book, The Blue Divide uh, policing and race in America. Show the, the viewing audience, what the, what the jacket cover looks like, um, beautiful book. It's, uh, it's very interesting read. And of course, as timely as timely could be considering everything that's been happening in America. So, um, what, what Mm -hmm. was the impetus for you to write this book?
1: Well, you know, I had kept up with issues in law enforcement, um, you know, one of the things that, that I like to do uh, when I was teaching my classes is explain to them the, some use of force principles, just so they could get kind of a, an understanding. You know, these are 17, 18-year-old, you know, 19, 20-year-old uh, kids, a better understanding of what what the law says, what the training says. And so, you know, when Michael Brown uh, was shot and killed by Darren Wilson and Ferguson, that was really the first big incident that that I think caught the national attention. I know Eric Garner being killed in, by uh, being arrested in New York city predated Michael Brown, but I think that was like the real big story that that was just covered uh, nonstop for a couple of days, the hands up, don't shoot lie and things like that. And so I just kind of kept, you know, studying a lot of these police related deaths of, of black Americans and kind of just, use my experience and my platform as a professor to to kind of debunk that narrative. Uh, Well, let me,
0: let me stop you there there for a second, because I want to ask you about this. Okay. um, So here you are, you're, 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 you're trying to talk to a a college uh, aged audience now about the use of force and trying to defend the actions of the police. What was the reaction from your students and what was the reaction from the faculty did you get pushback did you get um uh you know did what i i'm very well aware from from you know other other uh professors that i've spoken to that that it's a rather unpopular subject and and caused you know some some serious issues with uh with their employment
1: well, I was lucky. I didn't have those type of experiences. I did have a little hiccup when this book came out, as far as you know, making sure that that when I got interviewed, I made it clear that my views were not the views of my college. Um, but beyond that, you know, my my colleagues at St. Phillips um, have been very supportive. Uh, at Texas State, uh, I got to give Texas State a lot of props in the poli sci department because they have liberal, moderate, and conservative professors, and so pretty much all all ideas are welcome. And, and there isn't, there wasn't any, any negative feedback there. As far as the students go, they seem to really enjoy it because what I'll do is I'll kind of explain it, but then I'll act it out. I'll, I'll get a student to come down and we'll do the action, as fashion reaction drill, or we'll do the, you know, how far away do you have to be to be safe from a knife attack? You know, those kinds of things. And, <clears throat> and I go through the use of force continuum, you know, very gently with them, you know, and, and they seem to, to really enjoy it. Um, I try to make it you know, very casual, like a conversation, not like I'm preaching to them. And you know, I, I try to uh, be very personable when I give these uh, messages. It has been a little bit more sensitive since George Floyd died. Um, but I, if there's been any kind of negative reactions, they've they've kept it to themselves.
0: Interesting. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Um, you know, uh, the fact that your your uh, faculty that you work with um, supports you and and uh, it's re- it's kind of uh, it's good to hear, good to hear. So, all right, let's get into yeah, the book. And, let's get into the book itself, "The Blue Divide: Policing and Race in America." I, I the way that you put this book together, I found very interesting. Um, I'm going to read what some of the chapters are, so that the audience can get a kind of an understanding for how you put this book together. Um, the first few chapters, Use of Force, Training, and Scenarios. Understanding the Totality of Circumstances. A very good chapter right there. The Mind and Body Under Duress, Officer Preparedness. So you, you actually lay out a lot about the, um, you know, kind of laid a foundation for where you go with your opinions. And then from there, you actually go into case histories. Um I Can't Breathe, The Death of Eric Garner, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, The Death of Michael Brown, um, The Tragedy of a Child Lost, The Death of Tamir Rice. And you go on for um, much of, much of uh, the highest profile um, uh, uses of force in, you know, literally in modern history. And then at the end, you, you go into um, uh, more of the sociological issues, uh, biased criminal justice system the real cost of defunding the police. And then you go into the men and women behind the badge. I think it was a really, I I like the way that you formatted this.
1: Um, Is this your first book? It's my first nonfiction book. I I did publish something uh, fiction related some 13, 14 years ago that I, it was just kind of for me, it wasn't really to, uh, to sell. So this is my first real book, I guess.
0: (laughs) Great, great. No, I think uh, it, it's it's very well done. Very well done. Very easy to read. Um, and so let's let's talk about some some of these topics. So, as you said, the the anti law enforcement um, you know phenomenon. I'm going to call it because I never would have believed it would have it would have <clears> gone <throat> to the heights that it has gone. Really began with uh, the watershed moment. Uh, well actually it started before but that was in the in the early 90s um with uh rodney king but mm-hmm. that was just the that was just kind of the ancient history now but the uh the myth of hands up don't shoot the ferguson shooting where uh, darren wilson officer darren wilson of the ferguson police department shot and killed michael brown that if 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 I'm reading your, your book correctly and also from, you know, my, my personal uh, observations. That was the watershed moment that began the anti-law enforcement narrative, which continues to this day. Let's talk about that and because that was, I believe, um, the moment that we can all point our fingers to and say, yeah, that's where things started to change. Let's talk, if you would, bring, that, bring this subject up and let's <clears throat> discuss that.
1: OK, well, uh, I, I think the reason why it was a watershed moment, um, you, you had kind of a slogan that comes out. Um, Dorian Johnson is, was Michael Brown's friend that was with him at the time, and he's the one that went on camera and said he had his hands up, don't shoot. But I think what really made it explode into the national consciences was first there was riots right in Ferguson, but then you had uh, St. Louis Cardinal, or excuse me, St. Louis Rams at the time came out before four of their wide receivers came out with their hands up like this you know don't shoot uh, a whole panel on msnbc did it and it just kind of snowballed with all the media attention from it and of course you know once the doj doj report came out uh it, it was obviously a total fabrication um and that was something that, that the media really dropped the ball on I actually had a a podcast last week with uh, a member of the media who covered the Ferguson shooting. And, and he even admitted in the interview, you know, we got the DOJ report and we were kind of like, wow, we really screwed the pooch on that one. Um, but you still, you still hear that to to this day that, you know, he had his hands up, don't shoot. And, uh, another one, well, he was unarmed. That's, that's another big one that comes out of Michael Brown is why are you shooting an unarmed person? And so that's something that I always want to address. And, and that, that first part of the book, uh, you know i try to address some of the the things that people in the media or celebrities will say like you know if you're scared you shouldn't be a cop or why don't you shoot him in the knee or even president biden talking about Micaiah bryant why didn't you shoot her in the hand you know as she's trying to stab and kill another another girl um but yeah the hands up don't shoot you know it was uh it was a slogan that that black lives matter could really attach themselves to and and use it to uh, raise money and, and to, you know, fight what they believed was justice. Uh, but again, the, it, it was totally based on misinformation and a lack of understanding of, of training. Um, you know, Michael Brown was, was, uh, presented as this gentle giant, you know, this sweet kid who just graduated high school, you know, and, and I, you know, I mean, we have him on video doing a strong arm robbery, which is the whole reason why Darren Wilson stopped him and Dorian Johnson, um, you know, but I think in that in that particular case, the media really did a disservice uh, to law enforcement and to the public in general.
0: I I think that's the understatement of the century. That <laughs> was that was very pref- professorial. That <laughs> was, but uh, I mean, as as accurate as could be, because I think that um, the media was responsible for the firestorm that happened as a result and um, and and never took responsibility for it in fact to this day you still see politicians you still see sports figures clinging to the fiction of hands up don't shoot and it it's 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 shocking not only did were, were sports figures doing it you had you had congress people coming out onto on the congressional floor going hands up don't shoot and um, and this cost, this cost lives. This fiction. I mean, mm. the riots that came that came as a result of this shooting. Uh, I mean, it, it millions and millions of dollars. It changed the lives of, of thousands of people, and then it gave birth to the acceptance of violence that that we saw in the future. I mean, what do you what do you um, how do you attribute that? that change where suddenly um, writing became the the norm instead of the exception.
1: Well, I think a couple of things are at play here. Number one, uh, politicians, specifically politicians on a, a certain side of the political aisle, uh, ha- have long used race as a way to help keep votes in their party. Um, and I think, When you had something like hands up, don't shoot politicians would come out and and it was this perfect kind of slogan. It was this perfect kind of visual uh, that helped them raise money, helped them push their social justice narrative. Um, The the other thing I think uh, why things changed, and this is probably a pretty controversial uh, opinion, and this is my opinion, uh, is that to some extent, President Obama made it okay not to like police officers. Um, and the reason why I say this is because, you know, when he got elected, I, I thought, okay, this is the end of the race card. You know, this is the end of, of, of that because we've got a black man in the white house and, you know, we're going to move past this, this, you go to this post-racial period in American history. And if you look at academia since then, and you look at the way we respond to police officers and you know, what's out there in the media, it's actually, we've actually gone in reverse. Um, you know, when he called, Uh, The officers that arrested his Harvard professor friend, they acted stupidly. And then if you remember uh, his speech, uh, if you go back and watch his speech at the memorial for the five Dallas police officers that were murdered by Black Lives Matter sympathizer, you look at the way George W. Bush spoke about police and the incident and then the way Obama did. And Obama was almost kind of lecturing police like, yeah, this was tragic, but you almost kind of got the sense that, he was saying it's tragic but you know in a certain way y'all kind of deserve it because of, of this history that you will have and i am so i'm I think- really
0: glad that you brought that up i'm really glad because i was gonna i was gonna lead you in that direction because it, it's it's my opinion as well that um that, that the, the the moment that if we had a, if we could point our fingers at one particular moment where the paradigm shifted. Uh, and the and the anti-law enforcement um lobby, if you will, became something that literally changed the course of policing in america. and And I attribute it to that very that very moment that you just talked about, where the President of the United States came out and not knowing any of the facts behind what took place with the Harvard professor blamed the police and said they acted stupidly and that was the Mm -hmm. first signal to americans that if the president of the united states could come out and insult an entire profession uh based on information that wasn't even accurate that this was kind of like the switch the on switch Mm -hmm. for for what we are experiencing now do you agree with that
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, having, and let me be clear, um, there's no doubt that throughout American history, police have had a a poor relationship to communities of color, specifically in the South. And and there's no doubt that there was racism, there was oppression back in the 50s, you know, in Alabama, that kind of thing. But in modern times, really, since the community policing model started to take hold, I think, what, in the early 90s? I think we were, we were at a point where the police, you know, had a really good uh, track record. Um, And then when you look at the the people that don't like police, a lot of the people that I've spoken to, some of my colleagues um, at the college and some others, their negative perception of police is based on family stories. Oh, my grandfather, you know, was beaten up by police for basically jaywalking. Okay. Well, that was, where, where was your grandfather living? Oh, it was 1950s Georgia. Okay. Well, that's a whole different, you know, period of time than we're looking at today. But I think when Obama started to say hey, they act stupidly or when first lady Obama said, you know, the first time I've been proud to be in America because America's you know, racist and, uh, and then his speech at the Dallas Memorial, I think that gave people who already had a propensity not to like police. It just emboldened them and said, okay, most powerful person in the world says police are doing wrong. Now we kind of have authority to go out there and riot and go out there and and say the things that we want to say. And, uh, you know, you you go back, look at the George Floyd riots. We're in the middle of COVID, right? On on one hand, Dr. Fauci is telling us, you know, don't don't gather with your family of more than six to six people or something like that. On the other hand, he's like, oh, but the protests are fine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, in
0: exactly. Order. Exactly. The, the hypocrisy right. has been astounding in in the government's um, response to to the uh, to the, the riots. I mean, let look at the look at the attacks on law enforcement officers. And did we see any any uh, r- real action on the part of President Biden? To address the violence towards the police, I mean it was basically, uh, you know, the the Department of Justice was silent, the the president was uh, ineffectual, and um, and we saw the cities burn, and yet there were Mm -hmm. no, there there was no true recrimination of of the uh, of the, the rioting and the violence. And we are still I mean, we're still in the middle of the fallout from that right now. We're seeing mm-hmm. in fact we're seeing police officers being charged criminally by district attorneys in various parts of the country for simply defending themselves when they were under attack. And yeah. and, and it, it's it's startling to see.
1: Yeah, it's it's just politically expedient. Um for, for people on, on the left side of the aisle because you know, their base a lot of times uh, you know, feels these internally and to have people in leadership positions, positions of authority to kind of reiterate these things in the public, you know, it, just, it just fuels the fire. And one of the, the, the phrases that I use a lot um, is paraphrase from Thomas Sowell where he says that, you know, racism is on life support in America, but it's kept alive by race hustlers and those people who can profit off of it. And, you know, so if, if racism is not a problem, then you lose votes, perhaps you lose, uh, control, uh, and you lose some of your fundraising power. And that's, that's, that's really, for me, what it all boils, boils down to, I always say, you know, politicians, their number one goal is to get reelected and, you know, for these district attorneys and, and you know, other Congress people like Cori Bush, who called for the abolition of police, um, that's what their base wants and, I will give Biden some credit because he actually did at the State of the Union say, you know, we shouldn't defund the police, we need to fund the police. And if you remember that that moment in the speech, some of those Congress women, mostly the squad, you know, kind of like, ooh, boo, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Right. But Biden, I think, understood that this defund the police movement was costing them votes because the the result was spikes in crime, violent crime all over the country, police officers quitting, uh, transferring out of places like Portland and moving to Florida, things like that. And, you know, it just really frustrated me. You know, you look at the George Floyd riots and how many federal buildings and police departments got burned down. And and to my knowledge, not a single person's been charged with any of those things. Um, You know, and, and our now vice president actually, you know, helped fundraise to get the, some of those people out of jail. And it just really, to me, it, it the the politicians of the last 12 years, I think, have, have really divided this country on the issue of law enforcement more so than I've ever seen, for sure.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, I'm going to continue with that, but I want to uh, take a little commercial uh, moment here for uh, the, the, the folks that helped make this show possible and um and it's also a matter of officer safety so you know um uh, pete james over at uh, officerprivacy.com he uh he's a a, a retired cop who is a, an expert on the internet and he discovered that th- how easy it is to identify Get the personal information of of law enforcement officers around the country and he has created an approach that helps to safeguard that privacy because we all know that it has become uh it's it's become part of the the methodology the anti-law enforcement methodology now to dox law enforcement officers you know to find them after they've 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 hit a you know a newspaper uh article or if a uh, use of force happens, that happens on social media. So it's really important for law enforcement officers to go to officerprivacy.com and see how you can safeguard yourself and your family's uh, privacy, because this is an officer safety issue. So go to officerprivacy.com, check it out. It's not expensive. It's, uh, uh, I think it's something that every officer ought to, ought to really take a look at. Uh, because it, it can, it can um, create a barrier of safety for you and your family. So go to officerprivacy.com, get hold of Pete over there, and he'll, uh, he'll explain it all to you. And he's a, law, he's a big-time supporter of the Wounded Blue and of this show.
2: While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix Rx, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix Rx. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep, with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support, delivered in a patent pending, pill free, ultra absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep. Sleep deeply and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to healthycell.com and use code Out Loud for 20% off your first order. That's healthycell.com. H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L and use code Out Loud for 20% off. Let's
0: let's continue on now. With with where we are today. I mean, let's let's look at the issues that are facing our law enforcement officers now today. I want to, I want to pull something out of the, uh, out of the news, which I think helps to illustrate the, the topics that we're talking about and, you know, talk about violence. Here's a, here's a startling headline and it comes from the police tribune, Chicago cops attacked by gang members as they tried to help gunshot victims. A uh, Chicago police officer was attacked by a crowd on Tuesday and blocked from providing immediately life-saving aid to gunshot victims after a shootout between gang members on the south side. Police said the gunfight erupted about 4 30 p.m. and uh, uh, members of one gang saw members of another gang driving by and opened fire on them. A gun battle erupted between the two factions and five people were shot. Now when the police responded, Bystanders quickly got aggressive. Gang members began assaulting police officers, according to the superintendent. And uh, uh, the Chicago Police District commander said the crowd interrupted first responders they attempted to provide first aid to the gunshot victims. Now, let let me ask you something. Before the incidents that that we just spoke about, Do you think that we would have had a headline like that where gang members are so emboldened that they would attack uniformed officers who are trying to save the lives of people who've been shot? Do you think that we would have seen that?
1: No, not at all. I mean, again, I think it just comes from that they kind of have this mentality that, okay, they're the bad guys, and even those in power agree that they're the bad guys, and we're going to get away with it. And it's. I can't imagine, you know, what it's like being a cop today. That's one of the <laughs> the reasons why I put that chapter in towards the end of the book where I interview some current law enforcement officers about the state of policing. Because, you know, when I when I got out, you know, this is pre-Obama. So, you know, uh, it's quite a while ago and, and things weren't quite this bad uh, by any means um, but I, I just can't imagine trying to do your job, you're trying to help some save someone's life and then you got to look over your shoulder to see, you know, is somebody going to come try to attack me, hit me in the head, shoot me or something. I mean, you know, it's it's got to be so demoralizing. Um, and then especially in a place like Chicago where they don't get support from the mayor, uh, from the district attorney. And that's kind of like the new trend is district attorneys are just going really soft on crime. And so as a police officer, I can imagine you would just sit back and be like, well, why am I going to risk my life doing this when they're just going to get out tomorrow and and go right back to doing the same thing? Um, You know, it's, it's a terrible lack of leadership.
0: It's a lack, there's a lack of leadership, um, I think, literally from the top down of of the from the President of the United States, down to local police leadership. In fact, let's talk about that. I just saw a headline today that came out. That uh, addresses this, and of course, you know, sometimes there there are certain cities that always pop up on the radar when it comes down to just you know incredible stories of of incompetence and of uh, uh, you know political interference. And Baltimore is one of those cities. And this came out today. Um, This was from the Baltimore Sun. Baltimore County Fraternal Order of Police issues vote of no confidence in the police chief. In a letter, FOP President Dave Faulriner requested that Chief Melissa Hyatt be, quote, immediately removed, unquote. And uh, from the headline, it says, the Union representing Baltimore County Police Officers issued a vote of no confidence in Police Chief Melissa Hyatt on Monday evening in a rare move signaling displeasure in the department's top leadership. The meeting of the Fraternal Order Police Lodge 4 was closed to the media but the president wrote in uh, to uh, wrote a letter to county executive, made uh, public following the vote that they had the membership had quote lost all faith and confidence in the chief, and it goes on to request on behalf of the FOP that they immediately remove Hyatt as chief. I had I don't think I've seen this strong um, an effort by a police union. To remove a chief of police now here's what they continue to say um under the, her leadership the department has this is according oh this is according to the uh um the county the county executive who uh, said uh in an email statement that he remains quote fully confident in the chief and her ability to lead the Baltimore police. Under her leadership, the department has shifted to a more data driven, community focused model of policing. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so the, immediately the FOP, who, you know, the cops, the cops know the leadership, they know what the re- realities are. And for the county executive to dismiss uh, the uh, the concerns of these officers really shows I think at the heart of where uh, um, th- this this crisis in law enforcement leadership is born from and you know and it was it wasn't mm-hmm. only two weeks ago I think that the that the um, assistant chief of police in Baltimore who had just been appointed the financial chief deputy chief was was, Uh, employed for about five days before they discovered that he was actually a person of interest in a homicide and on the list and on the list of of uh, people that that uh, a watch list for for having guns so how can anybody in, in their right mind look at what's happening in baltimore and uh, you know and 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 a thousand cops say this person should not be leading us and the and the county executive says oh no 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 it's okay she's doing a great job isn't this part of what yeah. the crisis is in policing
1: yeah and I know I'm sure you know Travis Yates um from police 1 sure I um, had I've spoken with him a few times on, on actually, social he's, media actually he's from law com. Oh, law officer. that's right. That's right, law officer. Um, and he sent me his book, and I sent him mine. And and he talks about this that you know, police leadership is in a crisis, and I think that stems from the fact that once you get to a certain level uh, of administration, you become more politician than cop. And I was lucky, you know, my police chief, um, you know, our, our department at the time, I think had about a hundred officers. It was a a growing community, 60, 70,000 people uh, total, probably including the the college students. Um, but, you know, he, he supported the rank and file, as you say. A lot of times though, you don't see that, like in San Antonio PD, which San Antonio is about 20 minutes from Ryan. Uh, a few years ago, there was a case where Chief McManus got a kind of the same thing from the San Antonio Police Service Association, because what had happened, um, is there was a an 18 Wheeler, uh, full of illegal immigrants that were being smuggled over here. And this was several years ago now. And according to the state, um, he was required to wait and and have an official from Department of Homeland Security come and and take control of the investigation. Instead, he just released them and then they lost track of where these people were. And it was just one of those things. Again, it's, in my opinion, it's due to the fact that a lot of these people become more politician than police, uh, and and that's unfortunate. And then when you have poor leadership in the department, and then you have poor leadership for the city, and then the district attorney, it it, it makes it. In, in a lot of places, I think it, ma- it makes it almost unbearable to be to be a police officer.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't. You know, I mean, agree I, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, I was just saying that I'm, I'm trying to think. Uh, every cop I ever talked to with the exception of maybe one or two, when you, when you ask them, why'd you come out of a cop? It's oh, to make a difference, to, you know, uh, to help people, that kind of thing. And, and it's, when, when that's your motivation and you go out there and all you get is negativity, all you get is scrutiny. Um, you know, it, it's no wonder that the divorce rate in policing is, is as high as it is. And, um, just so, you know, some kind of the, the other problems that come along with being a police officer because you just don't get support. And, you know, I'm lucky that the town I live in, our officers do get a pretty good amount of police support uh, from the mayor and from from other people. Um, we have a district attorney that is notorious for being pretty hard on crime. Um, but in a lot of places in this country, it's just, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to work there.
0: You know, you know Baltimore, Chicago. I'm glad you brought that up because we're talking, you know, when you talk about the crisis in law enforcement, it it uh, manifests itself in so many ways. Of, as we've seen, um, police officers quitting their jobs, retiring at the very moment, the day that they can, even taking early retirement. Uh, recruitment is is in crisis, which is which is a whole nother uh, big ball of wax that, that hasn't really even you know, begun to reveal itself in, in how dangerous it is. But also the, the, the mental health aspects. I just read this today. Mm-hmm. Hero down, New York correction officer, Edwin Roman dies after jumping from bridge. Um, New York City Department of Corrections officer died after jumping from the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Another uh, suicide. And then I heard just yesterday, uh, that a police officer shot himself in his patrol car and the, uh, the uh, number of police officers committing suicide is absolutely an epidemic. One that's not getting any national attention whatsoever. And so, you know, my organization, The Wounded Blue, um, this is, it's a nationwide charity that helps injured and disabled officers. And whether those injuries are physical or emotional and psychological. And I just came from Police Week in Washington D.C., where during this week it was uh, uh, when when police officers from around the nation gather in Washington D.C. at the monument that bears the name of every police officer killed in the line of duty, and it's a very emotional time. Uh, And and my organization, the Wounded Blue, we had a booth set up, uh, actually counseling um, the officers who were. Who were going into crisis because of of the emotional impact from uh, from being around the the families of officers who've been who've been killed in the line of duty, a number of officers who were disabled in the line of duty show up, and uh, and it was a very it was a very emotional time, um, and so when we see these officers who are in crisis and they are taking their own lives. You know, for, for my audience that's listening and watching here, whether you're watching it on YouTube or AmericaOutloud.com, um, there is help. And that's what the Wounded Blue is all about. If you go to the woundedblue.org, um, just reach out to us. And and I have an amazing team. Uh, everybody's been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up and screwed over. They all, they've all experienced physical and psychological traumas. There is help. And, uh, and, I, and I urge anyone who is suffering from post-traumatic stress injury uh, who uh, has been physically injured in the line of duty to reach out to us. And, and I think, Will, you can, you, can, uh, you know, um, from everything that you have written in this book, um, you've seen firsthand the, the emotional and mental health crisis that's going on in law enforcement because of everything that you write about.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, one of the things that that you talking about this brought to my uh, memory is a a friend of mine who's now a sergeant with SAPD, uh, he and some other members of Santana Police have an organization called Saving Heroes Place where they make an honor chair that they deliver to uh, police departments of fallen officers throughout the country. It's a really great charity. Uh, They did a fundraiser a few years ago, and I I bumped into him, hadn't seen him in a while, And we were talking and and he told me about how when he was on patrol, he had to to take the life of somebody in a domestic call. It was totally legally justified, the only option he had. Um, But then he talks about how for weeks and weeks, every time he closed his eyes, he could see it. And, you know, so you're taking a situation where you've taken a life, you've done your job. And, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of cops uh, just like a lot of soldiers, um, Kind of have that warrior mentality where they don't want to go to help. They they feel, um, you know, maybe that they're they're weak or something. If they go talk to a counselor or something like that, and that's just not true. I mean, um, you know, it, it, I do understand the the stigma uh, because I, I felt it at, at times as well. But you know, I can say from my own personal experience that uh, talking to somebody, whether it be through your employee assistance program or winded Blue or any of these kind of organizations. Uh, very beneficial because mental health is, is something that uh, it it is so important when you do a job like this. Um, You know, and you look at the mental health crisis for our veterans, right? What 22 a day commit suicide, Um, you know, and it's just, it's so important that people reach out and and realize that they're, they're strong for reaching out and getting help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for also for my viewers and listeners you know you can play a role too you can play a role in helping these officers if you go to the woundedblue.org and hit that donate button five bucks ten bucks twelve bucks a month whatever you can give whatever you can afford um, our programs go I mean we've helped more than 10,000 police officers in the last few years so um, you can be a hero to these heroes and they truly are our heroes in America. So I urge you to go to the website and uh, uh, hit the donate button and also check out everything that we do because you'll be shocked to learn the way many officers are treated once they become physically injured or psychologically injured in the line of duty. It's actually pretty shocking. Um, You know uh, before we get into the next story I want to talk about another supporter of this show and uh, it's a a guy that invented uh, a, a very concealable system of holsters now every officer that I know carries off duty as well they should to safeguard themselves and their families and of course because of federal law now every retired officer as long as they qualify once a year can carry concealed as well and it's something that, that uh, every police officer should consider if they are not if they are not carrying. But how do you carry some? How do you carry a weapon so that you're not um, you're not drawing attention to yourself? You want it very very concealable. So sticky holsters is the name of the company. Sticky holsters uh, is uh, uh, started by a by a police officer, uh, Mike Christoph, and he's uh, uh, a true believer in doing everything that he can to help the law enforcement community. And by inventing this holster system, which is, I, I, I use it all the time. I, I'm carrying a weapon right now. You may not even, you wouldn't even know it. But because of sticky holsters, it's a, uh, it's a very concealable, it's a very comfortable um, uh, holster system. Uh, and uh, it's something that, you know, if it's not comfortable, you're not gonna wear it. And if it's not concealable, then you could draw attention to yourself, which which has a whole another set of problems. So, if you're law enforcement or have a carry concealed permit and you're looking for a way to carry that weapon that is very concealable and very comfortable, go to Sticky Holsters and uh, and check out what they've what they've got. Plus, you know they're a strong supporter of the Wounded Blue and this show as well. So, uh, StickyHolsters.com. Um, let's go into you know the justice system in America. Is, is, is mind-boggling at this point in history. Um, I've, got a, I've got a couple, couple headlines here that, 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 that just make me want to pull my hair out. Um, Gunman gets no prison after shooting two protesters while trying to shoot a motorist. Uh, this is out of Aurora, Colorado. A demonstrator who shot two people while trying to hit the driver of a Jeep that drove through a group of rioters that were blocking the interstate during the anti-police protest will not serve any prison time samuel young 24 was previously convicted in march on four counts of attempted manslaughter two counts of second degree assault one count of illegally discharging a gun and he faced up to 23 years in prison he got nothing he got nothing he is one of the guys that was that was uh obstructing uh uh, the the roadway illegally and this poor guy in a jeep is just trying to get the hell out of at a dodge and he can't there's nowhere for him to go and he's he's afraid for his life because there's this mob of 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 protesters Mm -hmm. this punk is armed with a gun and because he doesn't like the fact that this guy is trying to escape from them Opens fire on the Jeep, misses, because he's, he's a moron, and hits two people. And the judge says that he feels sorry for him. And that, oh, he, he you know, he, the judge said that he, he uh, really thought about this um, and it really was disturbing to him, but gave him no time at all. Is this, is, I mean, a police officer today is looking at getting indicted in Austin, or nineteen police officers just got indicted for trying to save their own lives when they were when they were attacked by a mob of thousands of people. I guarantee yeah. you that district attorney is going to want to get time for them. Although I believe that they are going to eventually be uh, found not guilty if there's any common sense left in Austin at all. Uh, but that's debatable. Yeah, that is debatable, I know. But, uh, you know, so you see this. A murder suspect indicted after social media video shows him pointing the gun at a Cleveland cop was out on bail for murder at the time that he did it. New York City says it can't prosecute teen rapper who shot NYPD cop. They're not giving any reason. They're just saying, yeah, he shot the, po- the police officer during a fight over the gun, but we're not going to prosecute. So police officers are reading these headlines and they're going what good is it to make an arrest and so what is happening now as a result of that
1: well you know you, after the the Michael Brown shooting you know they they had this Ferguson effect um, and now they the Minneapolis effect after George Floyd but it's exacerbated by just what you're talking about and so what happens is police pull back from communities of color or um, any really a community that they, they have to patrol and the people that get hurt the most are people of color that live in those communities where there's high crime because there's nobody to protect them. Uh, there's nobody that's going to be, you know, proactively out there trying to stop crime because you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, you know, when, when you're an officer these days. And, and if, if I was a, just a regular American, uh, that did, didn't really know about this stuff and, I just heard the headlines you just read. I, I would think that she must be lying because there's no way that this country would be that ignorant and that ridiculous to let these kind of violent criminals just roam the streets, you know, out of some sense of social justice or, or whatever their reasons are. I'd, I'd love to hear them because it, it all you're doing, you know, going back to my bachelor's in psychology, all you're doing is teaching these people there's no consequences, so just keep doing it. Exactly. Right. And exactly. And no consequences. So do do something worse next time. And it's just gonna get people killed. Um, you know, like I said, homicide is is up in all the big cities in this country. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're in the, the worst year ever for police in the line of duty deaths uh, so far, or at least one of the one of the worst years, if not the yeah. worst. And it's all because you're conditioning these people that nothing bad's going to happen. You're going to get bailed out by the system because the system feels sorry for you uh, because of this, you know, this now movement uh, of social justice that that permeates through academia, permeates through law, uh, criminal justice system, our political sphere. And it's, it's really damaging America, specifically people of color in America.
0: So we're running out of time here. Um, your book, The Blue Divide, I'm going to show it to the viewing audience again, like I said, it's a beautiful looking book. It's a hardcover. Um, Where can uh, people buy this
1: book? It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Target, you know, all your your major retailers. Um, It's available uh, as an ebook, paperback or hardcover. And if people want to know more about you, do you have a website? Yes, I actually just started a, a website just a few days ago called, uh, the center for truth and policing. So it's, it's truthaboutpolicing.com. Uh, and it's just a way they can reach out to me and I can do uh, speaking engagements at civic, uh, organizations or conferences. Uh, but you can also reach out to me on my Twitter page, uh, at W two, three, that's W M O R A V as in Victor, I T S two, three, uh, just send me a message and, you know, I, be happy to discuss things with anybody or answer questions or, or what have you.
0: Okay. It's fantastic. The blue divide policing and race in America. My guest, Will, uh, more of Thank you so much for joining me today and, uh, great, great, great book. Good luck with it. And we'll talk again soon.
1: All right. Thank you, sir.
0: At the end of the show, um, we, uh, we honor the men and women, of the law enforcement profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty this week last week um so i have three names to read three more names that will be on the wall in washington dc at the police memorial the first is deputy sheriff walter donald jenkins jr rockdale county sheriff's office georgia deputy sheriff walter jenkins was struck and killed at about 9 30 p.m while directing traffic at the intersection of highway 138 and 212. He was transported to Memorial Hospital, where he died. Deputy Jenkins was wearing a reflective vest when he was struck by a vehicle, and the juvenile driver has not been charged. He has served with the Rockdale County Sheriff's Office for over 20 years and uh, previously served with, uh, excuse me, for over a year, previously served with College Park Police for more than 22 years. Survived by his mother, daughter, two sons, and two sisters. Deputy Sheriff Walter Donald Jenkins, Jr., Rockdale County Sheriff's Office Georgia end of watch Wednesday May 11 2022 Chief Deputy Sheriff Jody Wayne Cash of the Callaway County Sheriff's Office in Kentucky Chief Deputy Jody Cash was shot and killed in front of the Marshall County Sheriff's Office in Benton at 210 p.m. he was escorting a prisoner when the man shot him the prisoner also shot and was also shot and killed during the incident Chief Deputy Cash was taken to a local hospital where he succumbed to his wounds He has served with the Callaway County Sheriff's Office for one and a half years, had previously served eight years with the Kentucky State Police, six years as the Assistant Chief of the Murray State University Police Department, six years with the Caldwell County Sheriff's Office. He is survived by his wife and two children. Chief Deputy Sheriff Jody Wayne Cash, Callaway County Sheriff's, Kentucky. End of Watch, Monday, May 16th, 2022. Border Patrol Agent Daniel Salazar, United States Department of Homeland Security, Border Patrol. Was shot and killed, excuse me, was killed in a single vehicle crash on, uh, in Campos, California. He was responding to investigate a sensor that had been activated in the area when his Jeep Wrangler patrol vehicle left the roadway and overturned. Another agent located the wreckage about 5.30 a.m. Served with the United States Border Patrol for four years. He is survived by his wife and son, Border Patrol Agent Daniel Salazar. End of watch, Tuesday, May 17, 2022. May they rest in peace um before we go i ask you once again support the men and women of american law enforcement you can do so by going to the woundedblue.org that's the woundedblue.org and donate what you can see what the this organization does it's a nationwide charity all of your donations are tax deductible and uh, they are saving lives go to the woundedblue.org and uh, just as a matter of kind of uh announcement my new book will be coming out in just two months, and you can get, get on the wait list right now for it. Hundreds of people have, and it's uh, very exciting for me. This book is all about where we are and how we got here in, in the world of law enforcement and criminal justice. It's called Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. I'd love for you to get on that wait list. Go to rescuing911.org. And hit that wait list button, and we'll notify you when the book comes out. That's rescuing911.org. Thank you so much for visiting here again today on The Voice for American Law Enforcement. I am your host, Randy Sutton. If you want to connect with me, I'm randy at thewoundedblue.org. Follow me on Facebook at The Voice for American Law Enforcement. I'm Randy Sutton. Thanks for joining me.